Movine, a contemporary ghost story written and narrated by Roy Baldwin. The wintry chill had finally abated. They emerged from the hotel doorway, the concierge chatting away as she led them to their hire car parked around the side of the building. The moment they turned the corner, Abby's face dropped looking at the large gleaming black BMW X5 4x4 SUV. Vicky, she hissed. What happened to Ford Fiesta? I didn't expect to be driving this monster. A bit of a muddle with the booking because I wanted a sat-nav. Anyway, the hotel is taking responsibility and we are paying the price of your Ford Fiesta. Isn't that super? Victoria beamed. The concierge gave Abby, looking blank, the key. Have a great day, guys. Make sure you get to Southport, nice drive up there and a great seafront, and left them to it. Once they got the doors opened and jumped in, Abby began to smile again. Mmm, I like the height of this beast and the leather upholstery. This is yummy comfort for me. Oh shit, Vicky, it's an automatic. I've never driven an auto before. Easy, put that stick into drive, foot down and away you go. Use your right foot for accelerator and brake as usual. Left foot now is redundant, all cool. N is neutral for when you stop at lights and P is park when you stop for good. Switch on so I can program the navigation screen. I've got the postcode of the Appleby Care Home on this card. They shot forward, wheels spinning and Victoria whitening as Abby took a careful jerky cruise around the perimeter of the car park, starting and stopping a few times and getting the feel of the drive. Then they shot out of the entrance, through the lights and into the busy city centre traffic. Wow, soon got this beast tamed. Thank goodness for the navigation screen because I don't recognise anywhere here. Blimey, the shops and the roads have changed like mega. I thought it was just me. Anyway, not far to go either. We should get there in three quarters of an hour. There's a new motorway here now, so we'll follow that route. Bypasses my old childhood haunts. We can backtrack later. You mean you don't want to see this Oarsbrick Hall as well today? Depends on what Evelyn has to say, but yes, why not? Get rid of some old demons at the same time. I'll tell you more later. Despite the motorway distraction, Victoria was quite intrigued driving through places she hadn't seen for so long. Certainly there were changes, a lot more housing estates in what used to be quiet and isolated villages, new roads and business parks. But much of the unique rural nature of West Lancashire, once outside of the conurbation, came back to her instantly, thinking warmly of the evenings as a child when all she could hear was skylarks singing and hovering over the canal and cornfields, and the lovely sunsets perused out towards the flattened green landscape of Liverpool Bay. Parbold Hill, Victoria began before turning to Abbey, concentrating on the winding road. A sort of landmark, it even has a monument on top, and was always the first change of scenery from the flat green farmland. You then continue onwards towards the starkness of the dark Pennines and bleak moorland. The hill is only about a hundred metres high, but you can see it for miles. The village nestles at the foot, and the Leeds and Liverpool Canal winds through the outskirts. Sounds idyllic, 
You look relaxed and contented for the first time, Abby replied, smiling. Do you like it here again? Victoria couldn't quite understand why, but somehow she did feel very relaxed, despite all the desperate hurt, pain and turmoil of her childhood. The area still had an inviting charm, certainly far nicer than the noise and urban bustle around the refinery in Holland. Secretly she had been feeling quite claustrophobic sometimes in Rotterdam, especially at the weekends, sauntering around the shopping centre, when Abby wasn't dishing out kebabs. The amount of people around now in West Holland was becoming overwhelming. Did you say care home? Yes, apparently Evelyn is quite elderly and according to Linton rather frail, but he just refused to tell me any more, although I'm sure he knew plenty. Why are you smiling? Oh, I forgot. I sort of got a text actually from Linton. Well, how come he had your number? I slipped in my card on the way out whilst you were gazing at Lilith on the wall. Text usage said Southport with a question mark. Victoria laughed. Maybe we could ride the big beast out there. Which big beast? Abby chimed in with a smirk. They turned into another shortcut lane and Victoria pulled down the visor to apply some red lipstick. Glancing into the mirror, she looked, then looked again. Her heart nearly stopped dead. They were not alone. They had a passenger in the rear. That woman was sitting there, primly, purple shawl still wrapped around her head, same pained expression, staring hard at Victoria, except she raised her hand and pointed left. Oh, fuck! Jesus Christ, Vicky, what on earth is the matter with you? Abby shouted. You've gone as white as a sheet. I'm pulling in. They stopped in a cutting between the hedgerows. Everywhere were quite deserted. Just a small farmhouse with a smoking chimney in the distance and some cows grazing in the adjacent field. Victoria was stirring straight ahead and now shaking badly. Just tell her to go, Abby, please. Tell her to get out of this car, out of my life. Abby stirred at her. Tell who to go? Okay, slowly, please. What the fuck are you talking about? That woman in the back with the purple shawl. Please tell her to leave. I've had enough now. Abby turned around and back again. There's nothing there, look. Victoria turned around. No sign of anything or anybody, but she smelt a faint whiff of something penetrating and unpleasant when she realised again, the same as in the solicitors, it was definitely aniline. She felt frightened once more. Actually, Abby said, suddenly opening her door, I can smell something peculiar, like petrol gone off. Hope we haven't got a leak. Victoria looked at her and her insides bounded back to normality. She wasn't going crazy, and threw her arms around the startled Abby, slobbering. Oh, Abby, thank goodness, it isn't just me. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much. Abby gently lifted her arms off and looked sternly into Victoria's face. Okay, I can sense you haven't told me everything lately, and maybe I haven't told you things either, so time for total honesty and a chat. There's a large garden centre, according to this map, not far from here, and we have a good hour yet 
probably with a tea room. Deal? Yes, deal. But that woman was vehemently pointing, pointing to the left. What's over there? Abby played with the sat-nav and altered the magnification to get a better view of the surroundings and moved her finger gently over the screen. As the crow flies, it leads directly to, hmm, the village of Oarsbrick. Let's get to that cafe. Maybe having me with you is more than fortuitous. What do you mean? Has all this got something to do with Oarsbrick Hall? I suspect so, and you must promise me something now, Vicky. No more scientific rationality, ranting and vitriolic scorn poured on things you don't understand or believe in. I want you now to have a very clear and open mind, just like you were doing a detailed and objective scientific investigation, though you had no idea where it was going, understood? Do you promise? Victoria stared hard at Abby. It wasn't often she was serious and assertive, but whatever was going on had touched Abby deeply as well. And she was so very, very grateful for her best friend being there, knowing that together they could muster and rustle together all kinds of skills and knowledge to get to the bottom of this weird stuff. Suddenly she felt an unexpected relief again, like nothing had happened. Exactly the same as in the solicitor's office when she got in outside. Tea and cake's on me. Time to get fat, both of us, she replied with a grin. Well, step on it, Lewis Hamilton. Amby grinned back, and they shot off towards the garden centre. They were sat, pondering in front of a large red-spotted teapot and two giant slabs of lemon drizzle cake. Victoria now came clean and explained the odd sightings of the mysterious woman both inside Green and Burgess and then at the ship and mitre. No longer after the ghostly carjacking could she put this out of her mind as some random non-event that she was normally capable of scientifically doing. She stepped back from her thoughts and waited for Abby to respond. Whilst you were cavalvorting in the pub with the eccentric Julian, after the exhibition, Abby commenced, I went up to the new central library and had a scour of information in the reading room. What sort of information? On what topic? It was on a couple of things. Lately, I don't know why, I've been experiencing odd periods of serious inner unease and even had some recurring dreams of being in a laboratory which, as you well know, is definitely not me. I distinctly remember wearing a white coat and holding flasks of coloured liquids. There were people around me, all men I didn't recognise. Everywhere was hazy and smoky and smelled horrible, and the equipment and the furniture were ancient, and there was someone at the end of the bench wearing a top hat and a long dark coat. I had the same dream three nights running, preceded each time by those bad feelings, like there was a presence but in my head. The last night was when you had your accident, and then there were the tarot cards which I had dealt to myself. Tarot cards? You mean those crazy things that people believe in for predicting futures and... Vicky? Sorry, I promise. I am sticking with the deal. Big zip on lips. Good. No matter how I deal a selection, two cards keep coming up, 
each relatively harmless. Not the death guard, it doesn't matter now what they were, though I wanted to dig further into interpretations. My knowledge isn't that deep, I'm not really a practitioner. So what did you find? This is where I come in. Analysis and synthesis of ideas in a logical and scientific thought process. Not everything follows that ideal dream ticket, I'm afraid. Anyway, not as much as I wanted, because you rang and I had to get out of the reading room and find you. But I did get time to look at some old papers and photographs. They were rare and under glass for protection, and others have been microfiches, basically old sepias between 1875 and 1890, done by a famous photographer in Liverpool. I am now absolutely certain that the setting in my dreams wasn't as I first thought, some mental distortion of earlier school years in old chemistry labs, but a Victorian science laboratory, with lots of practical work going on. I've never seen or been in a Victorian laboratory, Vicky. No, neither have I. But how you describe it sounds plausible, thinking of the man in the top hat and coat too. Why didn't you tell me before? Remember, last time we tried to have a discussion about my so-called psychic abilities, you went into one of your negative and endless debating rants that felt like I was being put on trial and convicted for fraud. I just didn't want to continue. Okay, after what has been happening to me over the last week or so, even I have to admit my uber-scepticism has taken a serious knock. So, a psychic... Ranfree Zone has my full personal guarantee from now on. Victoria smiled and patted Abby's hand. More cake? Gosh, no. I can only just fit into these jeans as it is, Abby replied, laughing. Anyway, I found something else. Curious about Osbrick Hall, I had a search in some archives. Couldn't find anything, and then the archivist said any meaningful information could be held by the county records office in Preston, or local parish records, and possibly census data, much of it online. But she did have some old maps of the area, done in the early 1870s. What do you remember of Osbrick Hall as a child from a distance? I know you said you never went near the place, but you saw it presumably. Yes, of course, from a distance. It was large, certainly old, and looked dilapidated. A manor-type house, with obviously lots of rooms and big chimneys. All the gardens and land around it looked very neglected, but it's vague, Abby. I was about eight at the time, when I last remember, and it was always misty and damp. And where did you see it from? The canal, of course, which ran in front of the house, though I'm not sure now whether it was the front or the back, come to think of it. The perspective didn't click with my eight-year-old brain. It was the back. No other building, then? No, why? Because the map shows what must have been a large factory, labelled of some sort in the grounds between the house and the canal. So whatever it was the canal probably supplied materials or was used to get goods to customers and probably both. Factory has been completely removed, obviously, or you wouldn't have been able to see the house. Unfortunately, no maps between that period and now could be found. What are you trying to say? Not sure yet. 
but something seems to be being planted, reflecting circumstances into our minds, but isn't making sense, at least not yet. Victoria looked at her watch. We'd better go and get to see what Evelyn West has to say. She must hold the key to all of this. I'm glad we're going now, and especially that you're coming with me too. Odd, isn't it? Abby whispered. Like I've been destined into the act too. Hmm. Key's out. Let's get a move on. I'll go and pay the bill. Soon they were on the outskirts of Parbold. Having taken a quick detour up the hill so Abby could peruse and pat the monument. Good heavens, Vicky, what an unusual design. The stone is carved out like a large bottle. What's the background, you know? Lovely view, too. It's actually called the Parbold Bottle and made out of local gritstone. Apparently, it was put up in 1832 to commemorate the Reform Act and give many more people a vote for the first time around the country, Victoria replied, immediately amazed with her own detailed recall of local history, which had been buried in her brain since school. Although, she added, knowing Abby would be interested. It was, of course, only males allowed to vote, which was reinforced by the bill wording and caused much resentment, from which the woman's suffragette movement sprung up gradually, Abby smiled. See, you do have empathy with the local uh, uh, locality, really. Actually, that bill was also commemorated by the famous portrait painter, George Hayter, now hanging in the National Gallery. What a great store of historical knowledge we two can muster up between us. I'm sure even Linton and Julian would be impressed. Vicky laughed loudly and they jumped back into the BMW and continued down. They soon took a left turn near the Leeds and Liverpool Canal and drove slowly along a wide gravel drive. The ornate iron gates ahead, with Appleby Lodge prominently displayed on a gold plate, swung open automatically and they parked with a gravelly crunch of tyres outside the main door. They appeared to be the only visitors there although they could see a couple of old Land Rovers at the side. Abby stirred across at the lodge. What a beautiful building, certainly Georgian by the windows and overall architecture. The brickwork is in amazingly good condition. I agree, Victoria replied softly. The place is very well kept too. The gardens especially, and the surroundings. Look at these lovely oak trees and the flowers and roses out in the flower beds. This isn't your ordinary sort of care home, Abby. I'm getting more intrigued by the minute. They pushed the bell and the large red door opened. They were greeted by a smiling woman in her mid-fifties, wearing a smart blue suit and white blouse. A couple of other staff were hovering in the corridor, cleaning and taking trays out. Oh, do come in. You must be Dr. Mackenzie to see Meveling. She's expecting you. My name is Betty Grable, no relation I'm afraid. I'm the warden of the lodge. If you just wait over there, I'll see if Evelyn is ready. She looked somewhat more sternly at Abby. And you are? Er, uh, Dr Abigail Warren. I'm Victoria's colleague. Ah, okay. I'll mention it to Evelyn first. 
She insisted we made some sandwiches, so I'll just get them topped up. Before you head over there, Dr. Mackenzie, I should just warn you. Victoria felt some trepidation coming on. Betty Grable sensed the anxiety and smiled. Nothing serious, don't worry, but Evelyn is getting on, has a tendency to nod off unexpectedly when she's talking. It can be just for a minute or hours, so be aware. Otherwise, for her age, she's in remarkable health and state of mind. I think her continued artistic work must be good for her. You mean she still does textile artwork? Gosh, Abby interjected quietly, looking animated. Sorry, Mrs. Grable. I'm also an artist. That's fabulous. Betty Grable's demeanour suddenly changed, and with a grin she replied, I shall tell her that too. They waited for a few minutes, when Mrs. Grable returned with quick strides. Evelyn will be pleased to see both of you. I'll take you down. Actually, Mrs. Grable, may I use your facilities, please? Abby suddenly requested, looking uncomfortable. I'm sorry, Vicky. No problem, Dr. Warren. Down that corridor on the right. When you've finished, I'll take you to Evelyn's room separately. Betty Grable and Victoria marched off through a large oak door and into the other corridor towards the back. The lodge was quite spacious, spotlessly clean, but somehow retained a 19th century atmosphere with the style of drapes and antique furniture everywhere. Passing one room, Victoria could hear the mellow tones of a cello being played, what sounded like a choir somewhere in the distance. One of the residents suddenly came out of a room wearing a pair of goggles and overalls covered in paint and holding an easel. Victoria's eyes swivelled to watch him disappear happily into a large room. I can see, Dr Mackenzie, that you don't know the background to Appleby Lodge. This is a special care home. All the residents in here are artists or musicians of various types. Some continue active. Others, I'm afraid, are beyond their former calling. We have 15 residents who come from all around the country. Most are here only a few years, like in many homes. And we have a full range of facilities to accommodate physical needs and also dementia. It must be, I'm sorry, I don't want to appear rude as I don't know, but well, expensive. All these things are relative, aren't they? But yes, the home would be out of the reach of your ordinary local resident. But it was set up with a trust for this purpose. Ah, here we are now. Evelyn has one of the nicest suites in the lodge with a lovely view from her windows. She knocked on the pale green door. Victoria heard a firm but certainly elderly voice in a very posh accent reply. Do please come in. Mrs. Grable held the door wide, and Victoria walked into a large and very high-ceilinged room, papered with a striped design she had never seen anywhere before, and the walls finished off with a marble Georgian coving. All around the walls were adorned with wonderful hanging pieces of fabrics, again like nothing she had seen, intricately designed and colourful, where she could make out themes of an outdoor nature, trees, water lilies, meadow flowers, orchards. She immediately thought of Abby, wondering why she was taking so long. 
a high rear window from floor to ceiling, which could be opened out and letting in lots of daylight, especially noticeable with the sun shining in brightly, took her gaze. Standing in front, staring motionless at the view and holding onto two sticks, stood a small elderly lady in a mauve cardigan and chocolate brown skirt, her hair thick but white. She turned around slowly, her soft complexion highlighted with a bright red lipstick and smiled. Victoria, how wonderful to see you at last. But Victoria, ready to move forward and kiss her cheek, stopped dead, frozen in her tracks as she looked into the beneficent face and her mouth dropped. The lightness was so uncanny she couldn't believe it. It was like looking at herself in the mirror, admittedly a much older face. Evelyn had remarkably few lines, great skin, and her thick white hair cut in a fashionable bob, just a little shorter than her own blonde style. But the eyes and the intense looks were identical. Evelyn looked quite amused and didn't seem in the least bit surprised. Well, my dear, I must admit you have inherited the family likeness and are quite beautiful. Victoria stirred, perplexed. Who was this woman? I'm your aunt, Victoria, although obviously you would never have known, as I can see from your reaction. Just one of a number of things for you to learn today. Please come and give your long-lost aunt a big hug. Oh gosh, Victoria stuttered and rushed forward to hug Evelyn and kiss each cheek, totally bowled over by this unexpected revelation. Evelyn took her hand with both of hers. Her grip was firm, but her pale skin was lined with lots of small brown spots. Now take a seat, the armchair by the coffee table. As you can see, I've had some sandwiches made, cucumber and cheese. I hope they're acceptable. I'm a vegetarian, I'm afraid. Tea, Earl Grey. Lovely, thank you, Victoria replied, as Evelyn sat on the other armchair opposite and lifted the large pink teapot and began slowly pouring out some tea into expensive Staffordshire china cups, sitting on delicate matching patterned saucers. Where on earth was Abby? Suddenly the, the door knocked and opened and Abby came bounding in. I am so sorry. Mrs. Grable insisted on showing me the most absolutely beautiful textile art objects in the conservatory. Then looked first at Victoria and on to Evelyn, both staring back at her. Oh, Abby, please miss, meet Aunt Evelyn, Victoria announced with her best voice, in a formal kind of way, not her usual style. Evelyn, her eyes narrowed, was staring hard at Abby, with a concentrated frown across her brow. Then she suddenly smiled and held out her hand as Abby moved forward to shake it. Abby, I'm so glad you're here. You're one of us, aren't you? Yes, Abby replied slowly. I suppose I am. Victoria, intrigued, looked from one to the other, not understanding what on earth her aunt was talking about, although obviously Abby certainly did, both their eyes still fixed firmly on the other, as Abby shook hands. Of course, Victoria muttered to herself, artists, they were both artists. Excellent. Now, Abby, my dear, I assume you would like a cup as well. 
I hope you enjoyed the display in the conservatory. Actually, that is my latest nature collection, which I completed earlier this year. Lots of inspiration in the woods at the back. The residents love a bit of a show, especially Gerald. Gerald? Victoria queried. My boyfriend. He still plays a beautiful cello, but sadly, although ten years younger than me, he's gone a bit gaga. Forgets everything the moment he goes out of the door. Music is the last part of the mind to stay with dementia, you know. But he's such a gentleman, and it's like having a fresh date every night. I'm sure you know what I mean, Abby. And do please call me Evelyn. I hate Miss West. Pull up that rattan chair over there with the yellow cushion. Victoria, once more dumbfounded, stared at Abby, who grinned and then blushed beetroot. Of course, and your work is so beautiful, Evelyn. Looking around the walls with huge admiration at the patchwork of colours and textures. Actually, my dear, I have a lot more on display, especially the fabrics I made as a young artist around your age in a gallery in Southport. It was then I developed and mastered my own technique. Everything is hand-sewn, original and unique, which I developed from my roots in painting. Each object evolves from an initial concept. I hand-stitch each piece of fabric into place with layering, nets, shears, using scraps, wools and yarns, all that sort of thing, and I dye materials as I desire them. Like you, I was a visual artist, but that was a long time ago. Abby grinned again, and back at Victoria, both of them in their own ways realising that some things were making a little bit of sense. Now both of you took into these sandwiches. She struggled up and quickly returned from a side room, holding an ornate tray with three cut glass dishes containing jelly, fruit and a blob of fresh cream. My studio is in there. I made this treat especially this morning. I have a small fridge where I keep the natural dyes I use to stop them going off. Abby's eyes lit up as she delved into the large plate of sandwiches. Now, Victoria, Evelyn began, not brusque, but measured in a business-like tone. The reason you are here, I want to tell you things about your family and the past which may surprise you, even shock you. But I understand you're a polymer scientist, so you should have a strong stomach, and what is done is done, correct? Then... When I've finished, you can decide whether you want to accept ownership of Osbury Hall or not. Victoria nodded, munching a cucumber sandwich slowly. But as Evelyn began to slowly pursue her story, the revelations that emerged were so mind-boggling as to almost be beyond belief, as she sat patiently, listening and trying hard to take it all into her sharp memory questioning would come at the end. Abby simply listened, very interested, but unusually, showing no emotion or reaction, almost as if all of these bombshells she knew all along, and that Evelyn and her had been sharing intimacies for years. That observation Victoria couldn't fathom at all, was determined in her own mind to do so as quickly as possible. The first thing she learnt was that her father, Jack, was even older than she thought. He had been born in 1907 and that Evelyn was his younger sister. Amazingly she was in her 98th year but even more astounding was the house, Osbrick Hall, 
that she had never been allowed to go near as a child, belonged to her father's twin brother, William Mackenzie. He was someone she had never known existed. Other relatives, mentioned vaguely once as a child, were all supposed to have been killed during the Second World War during a bombing raid in Liverpool. Obviously, she thought, a total lie. It appeared that her father and William had fallen out immediately after they graduated together at Cambridge, both in natural sciences with first-class degrees. They were exceedingly clever, Victoria, my two brothers. William graduated top of his year at Cambridge. Your father was sixth. That was when the resentment started. They fell out completely six months later over my best friend. She was an artist too, a muse and plenty of other things. She took them both for a ride, but they never spoke again. Your father never subsequently spoke to me. But that was just the starter. Her mother was not her real mother, but her aunt and stepmother. Her natural mother had died of pancreatic cancer when Victoria was three weeks old, and her father immediately married her mother's sister, one year older than her mother, who had been adopted as a baby. The family was just too big to feed, and she was brought up in America. But why all this secrecy, Aunt Evelyn? Why was all this kept from me? How did it all take place? It turned out that her real mother's family were hauliers of coal up and down the Leeds and Liverpool Canal and lived a nomadic life on gaily painted barges for generations. In other words, they were boat people. Her mother's grandfather originally owned and lived in the cottage on Cinderblack Lane, but then in the Depression fell apart for the family and life and everything just disappeared and he went to work in Liverpool on the docks. He died in the war years but had rented the cottage to her father who lived in it on his own as a bachelor teacher exempt from war service as a reserved occupation. That was how he had met her real mother and they dated secretly for years. She used to clean the house and he became obsessive about privacy. When her grandfather died she inherited the house. Her father continued living there rent-free when one day, after many years, she got unexpectedly pregnant with Victoria. And she was constantly ill with stomach pains, but everyone assumed it was the pregnancy. She gave birth, died soon after, and her sister Beatrice inherited the house, turned up penniless from America, and she and her father got married. To the outside world, Victoria was passed off as their baby, as they were both so reclusive at home nobody guessed or cared. Victoria sat back, stirring into space, silent and contemplative, but taking in the logical sequencing of events, happenings and conversations, and coming to the logical conclusion that much finally began to stack up and make sense. She wasn't especially bothered or even surprised about her so-called mother, but despised her parents even more for the continual and forced deceit. She had obviously been close to finding out about Uncle William when her mother caught her and hit her badly that day. If only she had known him. Gosh, he must have been at least 102 when he died. Amazing. Of course, her father was dead now too. So what else could be said? Except wherever Beatrice was now, she never wanted to see her again. That was for sure. 
She idly picked up a dish of jelly and fruit and began to pick at the cream, watching Abby wolfing down hers. Evelyn had gone quiet. Having suddenly nodded off, her head slumped back in the armchair, snoring peacefully. Abby turned to Victoria. You certainly have an interesting family background. I'm sure Evelyn was quite a raver in her day too. Yes, she obviously has just met a kindred spirit, Victoria replied, looking vacantly at Abby and still trying to take in the enormity of what Aunt Evelyn had just said. Now, Victoria, final piece of the jigsaw, Osbrick Hall. They both turned, startled, to see Evelyn perched on the edge of her chair, awake and ready for more. The property went back a long way. It had been in the Mackenzie family for generations, right from the mid-17th century when an ancestor and friend of Isaac Newton had apparently built it. The family had not only been amateur dabblers and enthusiasts for science right the way through, but also acquired significant wealth during the first half of the 19th century, applying their science and engineering successfully to opportunities rapidly emerging with the Industrial Revolution. The male head of household in each generation always partook of a family ritual and went to Cambridge to study sciences or mathematics. Of course, Evelyn added, that opportunity wasn't open to women in the Mackenzie family in those days. They had to stay at home, looking pretty and waiting only for marriage and children. Victoria interjected, I see how I've taken after the family and it is fantastic to learn all of that. But were there no women then interested in science or able to pursue it? There was talk by my parents that there were some science women in the past, but they never would expand on it, to me or William or your father. To be honest, I simply was too young, a child, and not interested. My father, your grandfather, also a top Cambridge graduate, was a brilliant researcher into drugs and medicines as a young man, and set up and ran a chemist's shop in Ormskirk with my mother. But they both died within days of one another in the flu epidemic of 1919, trying to treat people in the local sanatorium. I was, of course, living in Osbrick Hall. I was seven and parcelled off, as was common then, to a cousin's house in Bursco, and joined their household, a nuisance. There were no other adults as such. Both parents had been boat people and had just vanished, heaven knows where, my cousin Maud was 19, the eldest and head of the household. Ernest was 17 and a boatman. He'd missed the war because of his health and died when he was 20 from consumption. The other two girls, in their early teens, were horrendous seamstresses in the local textiles factory. I was like a fish out of water, artistic, clever, bored at school, bullied and ridiculed at home. And when I was 14, ran away to Liverpool and became a model, and pretty quickly mused to a famous society photographer. Victoria sighed, feeling oodles of hidden guilt melting away. She had done the same thing as Aunt Evelyn, well, apart from the muse part. Evelyn paused, as if ready to snooze again. It was simply reflecting, in a daze, her eyes glinting for minutes on what were obviously very happy memories. Abby smiled. Eventually, I met and married a very handsome, rich and charismatic cotton merchant with a string of ships and warehouses. We had no children, sadly, 
and lived in a huge house near Sefton Park in Liverpool, where many seafarers and merchants lived then. He was a rogue and a serial philanderer, never at home for months on end. That was when I fully developed my textiles art, sold lots and made plenty of my own money and lived at the heart of Liverpool's high society. Culture, jazz, dancing, everything. I made my own amusements, of course, when my husband was away. I had great parties, especially during the thirties. She winked at Abby, who blushed again. One day, my husband disappeared and never came back, presumed dead at sea, but I continued in the house and only came back here when it became too much for me. So do you remember Osbrick Hall? What was it like then? What happened after your parents died? Victoria queried, wide-eyed. Not a lot, although I was happy there as a young child. My parents were always laughing and joking, but there were parts of the house locked and barred that I could never go to. They were very close, with a great sense of local community and purpose. It was tragic, really. They were both only in their early forties. And you see, William and Jack were at the Blue Colt private boarding school in Liverpool and stayed there. They never came back and went straight to Cambridge together. I don't know who managed the financial affairs. There must have been some legal executor. The other part I couldn't go to was in the factory outside, where my parents made drugs for their pharmacy and for sale. They distilled coal, of course, then, for lots of things, including dyes, which is where I developed my interest in textiles. I learnt my fine art at evening classes. Abby spoke for the first time. There was a factory in the grounds. Of course, Abby, and had been there many years with various manifestations. I think it was built in the 1830s. What you want to know is what happened to it, don't you? Victoria looked at both of them like a private sub-conversation had been going on. She didn't understand, but no matter, as this amazing outpouring of the past was blowing her mind so much she just wanted Evelyn to carry on all day if she could, though her conversation was beginning to jump about, probably getting tired. Aunt Evelyn, might I make us another nice cup of tea? Those sandwiches and the jelly were delicious. Abby nodded with a grin. I'm so glad you both liked it. Use my studio. You'll find a sink and a Bunsen burner and kettle. Abby, can you help and bring the teapot, please? Victoria said quietly, with a mild stir, carrying the cups and saucers, as Evelyn settled back for another snooze. Once inside the studio, she quietly closed the door. OK, honesty and openness, you said earlier. Now, what is going on? It's almost like you know this fantastical story already and have shared thoughts with Evelyn before we got here. Because I have. Victoria looked at her friend, totally perplexed. Pardon? Because Evelyn is psychic, Vicky. Very psychic. And she sensed me the moment I walked in the door as I did with her. No, we don't share thoughts in a language like you and I speak. It's very hard to describe, a sort of language of feelings and intuition, anticipating ahead with triggers you can't explain. That was why she immediately said I was one of them. I thought she meant being an artist. No, clever of her, wasn't it? She wanted you to think that. I'm just surprised you don't have the same sense. 
I think you do, but for all reasons, it's all locked in at the moment. Evelyn will know we've been talking about this, and she wants that to happen. Because there are things that have gone on at Orsbrick Hall, I know now, and she can't tell you because her own psychic ability is acting as a shield to prevent her. Maybe because whatever it was, was so awful. She's trying to use me to unlock the barrier and let you in to find out. Because I'm sure, because of her age, probably, I don't know, just guessing, she's losing the will and capacity to find out herself. She's reached a delicate point in taking you this far. I know you're full of questions, but my advice is this. Don't mention anything about women in purple shawls. She won't be able to tell you, and in her mind it will create indescribable turmoil. The Bunsen burner was slow, but the kettle had just started whistling. Victoria, for the first time, not only bit her tongue, but was grudgingly prepared to accept Abby's hypothesis. Because of her immediate growing attachment to her new aunt, she was not willing at that moment to test it. Also, her own inner conclusion was she didn't have all the facts or evidence yet. It was as if a mantle of responsibility was being subtly passed on to the next and remaining member of the illustrious scientific Mackenzie family, her. Now she began to understand why Evelyn wished to pass on the legacy of Orsbrick Hall to her. But she wanted to know more about her Uncle William. But she had also made up her mind on the other matter. Thanks, Abby, she replied. You were quite amazing, actually. Catching the saucer quickly, which had slipped from Abby's hands. I believe you. Abby grinned, stunned and quite incredulous that she was hearing that statement. Gosh, that's a turn up, Vicky. I never expected to hear you say... Well, like, yes, so easily. And, Victoria Plot replied, I've decided. I'm going to sign the contract and own the house. I feel a responsibility to continue such an amazing family legacy somehow and try and solve whatever this mysterious bad deed is, but on one condition. Will you help me? Try and keep me away, but you haven't heard all the legal conditions of Linton Grey yet. They walked in as Evelyn was re-emerging from another quick snooze. Ah, tea again. What a wonderful pair you are. Grab that biscuit tin, Abby. I think, Victoria, we need to conclude shortly and you want to know some more about William and your father, don't you? Yes, I do. But can I ask? The solicitor said, You mean Linton? Such a sweet young man. He's been very kind and helpful. Yes, Mr Grey. He said there were conditions to fulfil if I accept the contract and take ownership of Orsbrick Hall. Very simple, my dear. You can sign the contract and take ownership any time as long as I approve. But if you want the financial legacy left as well, you will have to live in Orsbrick Hall for 12 months. At the end of that period, the legacy will be released and the bank account unfrozen. You are then free to do what you like with the house and the money. So what do you think? I've made up my mind, Aunt Evelyn. All the things you've told me today are so amazing and almost unbelievable, and it will take a little while to sink in. But I'm so glad you have. I would never have believed there was such an historic and scientific legacy going back generations that I knew absolutely nothing about, 
I feel both a responsibility and a huge inner drive to carry on that legacy in some way. So I want to sign up, find out more about the house and try and take the opportunity to, well, do something positive somehow with the place. I don't know fully yet. I have to go there and see, but I feel really enthusiastic. Good, my dear, because there is only you and me left now in the Mackenzie family. It would have to be down to you. I want to see my time out just doing more fabrics and painting, and of course, having some fun with Gerald while it lasts. Her eyes twinkled and a big grin broke out as Abby laughed loudly then stifled it quickly. As for living there, Victoria continued slowly, I do need to think about that. There is my work and life in Holland, lots of things to weigh up and I need to see the place too. I'm not really bothered about the additional money. There's something more fundamental inside me wanting to own Orsbrick. Victoria had already drawn the logical conclusion that any money remaining from all that wealth generation during the 19th century would be near worthless now with inflation, demonstrated by the way the house, as she remembered it from a distance as a child, was so run down. Obviously, Uncle William had little money himself. Well, dear, that's excellent. I'm so pleased to hear it. She walked over to her sideboard and took out a small decorated silver metal box with a beautiful patterned engraving etched onto the top. Take this box, Victoria. It's a cigarette case which belonged to your great-grandfather. It was given to him, I believe, by the wife of someone called William Morris, another textile artist, and I think a writer. Apparently he cherished it and carried it everywhere for the rest of his life. Inside is the key to Orsbrick Hall. The house is yours. Linton Grey will sort out the boring legalities, but there are no problems. I approve. Oh, Aunt Evelyn, thank you so much, Victoria cried out, hugging her heart. I won't let the Mackenzie family down. Enough of that, Victoria, Evelyn whispered hoarsely, catching her breath. Now let's take that tea before it gets cold. Congratulations, Vicky. Ginger biscuit, anyone? Abby added warmly, holding the full, full tin out. Evelyn concluded the background to Jack, her father, and his twin brother, William. After I'd been packed off to Bursco in 1919, Orsbrick Hall lay empty for the following seven years, until both William and Jack finished Cambridge both quite young as they had gone up at age 16. William came back and reopened the house. In the intervening period, the former housekeeper had kept an eye on the estate, ensuring the house didn't get too run down, although the grounds became completely overgrown and the factory had deteriorated badly. After the fallout between the two brothers, Jack went to Africa for five years, collecting and studying exotic insects on behalf of London Zoo. Victoria had no idea. It was only when he came back again and moved into Cinderblack Lane that her father started teaching at the Cradwell Private School for Girls, where he stayed reclusive for the rest of his life. Evelyn continued. William was a totally different character to Jack. At least he was then, apparently full of life, a bon viveur, and Osbrick Hall became a social mecca in West Lancashire for high society rural jaunts dancing, extravaganza and parties as the Roaring Twenties continued. 
and William fell in love. She was a beautiful, young red-haired deputant. Her name was Alicia, visiting the then Viscount, Viscount Ossersburn. They began some sort of affair. It was 1928, and science was the last thing on his mind, as he had access to his own independent means. He even had an MG sports car, although where that ended up nobody knew. But something happened on the night of the 31st of May. Only a servant saw it. They still had servants then, and William had reappointed them back, and even a butler. Alicia had gone, got up in the middle of the night and gone downstairs for some water, not feeling well. Whatever she had seen that night turned her totally hysterical, as she began screaming the place down and ran out into the gardens. But did Vic William find her in the end? Victoria asked, not wishing to break the flow of the story, but had to ask. Yes, Evelyn responded softly, but with some hesitation. By then, William was awake, with his servants began scouring the grounds without any luck. At daybreak, they found her floating behind the reeds in the canal. She had jumped in and drowned herself. Nobody to this day knows why, but William changed overnight. He became depressed, reclusive. The party stopped and nobody visited any more. The following year he demolished the factory, raised it to the ground, and of course eventually nature reclaimed the land back. He never went out again. The servants left or were sacked until all he was left with was the housekeeper and her daughter. The daughter eventually took over when her mother died and looked after him until the day he died. Abby never moved. She was absorbing everything she could, conscious and subconscious. Something had begun formulating too in the back of Victoria's mind, but she put it to one side as she still had an important question. And you, Aunt Evelyn, were you not able to do something for Uncle William? And what about my father when all this was happening? Sadly, dear, we had all become so estranged that nobody cared about the other. We each lived our own lives like the others never existed. That was often the way in those days. We simply shut each other out, mentally and physically. I never saw either your father or William again. I regret I didn't even go to Jack's funeral. But I knew when he died. Well, it wasn't quite so bad because when I moved here three years ago, I decided to end this stupidity and go and see William on his 100th birthday, would you believe? It was quite an effort after all those years. That awful housekeeper was still there. And he was not the man I remembered. He had become very frail and forgetful. But at various moments, his mind returned as razor sharp as ever. He had reunited again quietly with science rekindled his private interest in chemistry and had been dabbling with experiments somewhere in the place, but on what I haven't any idea. That's your domain, my dear. Abby and I simply paint. But he knew you existed. How or why, he wouldn't say. And he even knew you were a scientist living in Holland. But he insisted, and I agreed, that you be given the Mackenzie legacy and house to continue when he died. It was William who set the conditions. In his last year, his mind finally went, Knight became the legal executor, but he died peacefully in his sleep. He's buried there. Buried? 
Of course, Osbrick Hall has its own private cemetery and small chapel at the rear. There are generations of Mackenzies buried there, though your father was, I believe, cremated. Toria's eyes widened and she glanced at Abby, whose eyes still remained fixed and unmoving on Evelyn. Well, that's it, I think, for today. Victoria, could you please tell Betty that we are finishing for the day whilst I show Abby some more of these prints and paintings on the far wall? Certainly, Aunt Evelyn, Victoria replied, sensing now that after these massive but necessary revelations, her aunt was looking decidedly weary. She headed to the door. Oh, before I forget, Evelyn whispered loudly, her voice having become decidedly croaky. You may, my dear, change your mind about the financial legacy when you know how much there is. Victoria turned around. How much is there? Just over twenty-five million pounds. You will never have to work again, dear, and we'll have enough to get the house back to normal. House is still essentially very pretty, but needs quite a lot of work doing on it. William let it run down dreadfully over all those years. Victoria felt a disbelieving stunned sickness envelop her. That amount just couldn't be possible, surely. She smiled back weakly. My goodness, Aunt Evelyn. Yes, certainly food for thought. Oh, gosh. She went off in a daze down the corridor to look for Betty Grable, catching once again the melodic sound of Gerald's cello playing sweetly in the background. Evelyn grabbed hold of Abby's arm and led her into her bedroom, where the walls were covered in paintings rather than fabrics. Abby gazed open-mouthed at the sheer sensuality, warm colours and bold brushstrokes, vibrant summer scenes of fields and flowers, but mixed with early Liverpool, urban regeneration in the 40s and 50s, where old and new buildings sat side by side in an uneasy alliance. The Blitz destroyed some wonderful old buildings, Abby, in the war years. Liverpool got a pounding, of course, because of the docks. But the senseless destruction of heritage, which never could be created again, is still unforgivable. Look what they put up in their place like bad false teeth. I tried to capture the desolation I felt at this time through my painting. This was the period which slowly influenced my move to fabrics and sewing. I felt the brush was betraying me. Do you understand, my dear? Absolutely, Evelyn. But these are wonderful. I also felt the same, which took me into fashion design, but which hasn't been a big success, unfortunately. I'm crap at business. Yes, I know I can sense it. I think you may want to return to your passion, fine art, one day. Hey, Evelyn, maybe even textiles art. Maybe, Abby. But whilst Victoria's outside, I want to tell you something else quickly about his stepmother, that damned American, Beatrice. She came here three years ago and insisted I took her to Osbrick Hall to see William. She was with some fat, slimy-looking Texan, younger than her, with the most awful accent, and she looked a peculiar state, all tarted up like a pier-head hall out of the 1940s. It made me feel quite queasy especially when she began asserting that she had rights to inherit Orsbrick, would pursue a legal claim if she wasn't in the will as main benefactor. I insisted that her partner would not be appropriate to visit, and he remained in the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool. 
Next day we arrived near the entrance at Orsbrick in a taxi. She was in the rear and I was in the front. I loathed the back seats of cars. When she suddenly started screaming hysterically and appeared to be wrestling with someone next to her, then she was gripped with some sort of seizure and fell over the seat. The taxi filled up with a strong smell too, like, like the kerosene we used to use to light oil lamps. The poor driver was hysterical. She never woke up and died two days later in the Royal Infirmary. The autopsy revealed she'd actually died from the effects of acute alcoholic poisoning. Her brain had gone to mush. That was obvious looking at her. She was an alcoholic, you could smell it. But the registrar at the Royal took me to one side and revealed that not only was her liver three times the normal size, it had gone a bright purple, same colour as the methylated spirits mixed with whiskey she had secretly been consuming. Nobody in the hospital had ever seen that before, so very odd. She was immediately cremated and the Texan disappeared back to America with an urn. So Victoria's mother, as she always sadly had only known, is quite dead, my dear. I would like you to tell her at an appropriate point, but I don't think it's wise right now. You know I am saying that, my dear, don't you? You must help her find herself. Abby took a deep breath. Yes, she certainly knew so much, and was as concerned as Victoria's Aunt Evelyn. Yes, I will, I promise. Excellent. Now, I'm surprised my little beauty at the end hasn't caught your eye yet. Abby turned and looked at the far wall, near the large bay window, and her heart nearly jumped out of her mouth. Oh, my word, is that what I think it is? Go and look, my dear, and see for yourself. Abby bounded to the window and peered at the framed painting of a young and stunning-looking woman with thick blonde hair adorned with water lilies and sitting in a billowing yellow crinoline dress, staring wantonly towards an open window. She squinted at the signature, now fading and shrieked with delight. Gosh, Evelyn, it's a Rossetti, a genuine Rossetti. That is so awesome and amazing, but who is the woman doing the sitting? Look carefully, Abby. Who does she remind you of? Abby gazed hard. That became so obvious. The eyes, the stir and the shape of the face, the likeness was so incredible. The painting was becoming a little faded, the face slightly distorted. Not perhaps as well done as earlier works. Probably, she mused, towards the end of Dante Gabriel Rossetti's life, when chloral and ill death dogged him badly. That was my grandmother Lydia, and Victoria's great-great-aunt. She was nineteen at the time, a Mackenzie, a young niece of Victoria's great-great-grandfather, who owned the cigarette case. Rossetti had many muses in his time, including Lydia. He loved women, and especially painting them, as you know, of course. So, Victoria's family, during that period, were not only scientists, but also had close links with the arts. Oh yes, they were very much part of the landed high society of the time. The arts and scientists were very intermixed. Cultured men and some women, when they were allowed, were highly knowledgeable of both. It was a sort of rite of passage to demonstrate you had a top liberal education. Victoria's great-great-grandfather was probably at the pinnacle of that period. 
You mean he knew and mixed with Rossetti, Wardle, Morris, and all those other people dabbling in arts and science and textiles? Quite possibly, my dear. I don't really know. Ah, I can hear Victoria returning. Hello, Aunt Evelyn. Abby, where are you? Abby and Evelyn walked out of the bedroom to be greeted by Victoria holding a large framed fabric piece alongside the smiling Betty Grable. My fault. I apologise she was so long, Evelyn, but I had to show Dr Mackenzie your little exhibition in the conservatory. And, uh, Aunt Evelyn, guess what? I bought one, seeing as they had a price tag on them. Ever the businesswoman, aren't you? I never miss a trick, my dear, not even in here. Now, what have you purchased? Ah, the water lilies, how nice. That has such happy memories when I did that. Really? Yes, it was from a painting I made in the grounds of Osbrick Hall, Evelyn began, fidgeting with her sticks. At the edge of the wooded area, there is a large and secluded natural pond, surrounded by reeds and tall grasses. That pond has a long history, was always an integral part of the family in growing up. Because all the men of the Mackenzie family loved to fish there, the children would have picnics and collect frogs and tadpoles and little sticklebacks in jam jars. Her eyes danced mischievously. And, I'm sure on quiet sunny days, it was a place where boyfriends and girlfriends would be taken for a bit of canoodling. You mean you painted all the water lilies in the pond and then made this piece from it? But when was that? Victoria quizzed somehow not getting the timelines to make sense. It was only three years ago, my dear. I wanted to do something meaningful to reconcile properly with William. You see, for all those many years, deep down, I loved my elder brother. He was like me in his youth, mischievous and outgoing, a real extrovert. Not, I'm afraid, like Jack, always the correct and studious type. They looked like twins, but their personalities were so different. So for William's 100th birthday, I suggested taking him fishing at the pond, and he went with all his old gear and rods. It was a bit of a struggle, but we managed it, and we even took a picnic and I painted. The housekeeper actually brought his old wind-up gramophone and we played old 78 records. They must still be there somewhere. William loved early jazz and dance bands. We had such a wonderful day, and we talked and talked. His mind became so lucid again, it was amazing. We made up after all those years. We never repeated it, and he began to deteriorate quickly after that. But it was a day I shall never forget. Funny, my dear, how you picked that one, isn't it? A lovely memento, I'm sure. It's really fantastic. I feel so happy today, Victoria replied, as Abby, standing behind Evelyn, watched pondered and began to think even harder. End of chapter